Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. There's a kind of community uh, and, and, a, and an ecosystem that you need to learn and you need to understand the language of and you need to spend some time with. But you also need to challenge. I think I've been really buoyed by the um, some of the interactions I've had with the CEOs of other organizations who say, Armina, you know, your your political experience is invaluable to us. I think you're your don't underplay how important that is because so few people in our roles have experienced what you've experienced. So bring that out, you know, let's have that conversation. And that's been really helpful for me because sometimes the um, anxiety, and I had this in the beginning was, oh, well, I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want people to think that's all, you know, that's what I bring to the table. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support to date. We couldn't do what we do without them. I'm proud to announce that for the next two months, our podcast sponsor is Leadership Victoria. I first learned about Leadership Victoria and their flagship program, the Williamson Program, some years ago through multiple podcast guests who I both respect and admire. So who is Leadership Victoria and why are they relevant? Well, they are an innovative, independent social enterprise. Their vision is purposeful leadership for an inclusive, equitable and sustainable society and they exist to foster leadership that inspires, connects and transforms. To learn more about LV and their amazing work and programs, hit the link in our show notes or just head to leadershipvictoria.org slash humans dash of dash purpose. Be one of the first to head to this link and you'll get a copy of the new book from the Kansas Leadership Center, When Everyone Leads, thanks to the kind folk at Leadership Victoria. When Everyone Leads was the number one new business release on Amazon during launch week and hit number four on Porchlight Books business bestseller list in January. This week, I'm proud to bring you my conversation with Armanay Nelbandian, who is CEO of the Centre for Social Impact. The Centre for Social Impact is a collaboration of Australian universities who provide education, tools and research to help catalyse social change for a better world. Armanay is a friend of mine and the Centre for Social Impact has been a friend of the podcast for many years. Amine is celebrating her first year anniversary as CEO of the Centre for Social Impact, and we talk a bit about this in our conversation, as well as Amine's fascinating life and career journey across countries, sectors, and roles. Amine is whip-smart, politically savvy, reflective, strategic, and just the type of modern purposeful leader we're thrilled to bring you during our Leadership Victoria sponsorship window. Before we get started, a quick reminder that we've just onboarded some terrific new podcast partners that can offer you, our listeners, access to a plethora of amazing discounted products and service opportunities. These are products and services I've approached personally because I use them and I've grown to love them and I think you might like them too. You'll see leading brands in the show notes including Chief Nutrition, Protein Snacks, New Recover, Portable Ice Baths, Bonnie for Luscious Stooners and Welly for Healthy Drinks all on our partners page via our website with great discounts and also links to these direct discounts in our show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amine as much as I did. Amine, I am thrilled to have you with us finally. How are you? 
I'm very well. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a little while in the making. I'm really glad we flagged this when we last caught up. To get you down to Melbourne and to get an hour with you is an absolute privilege. So thanks for coming. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in Humans of Purpose style, we want to get a little bit back into your background journey um, and entry into the space. So it'd be great to hear from you a little bit about um, your journey, early life, Armenia, the US, Australia. It's been quite a journey. Indeed. Yeah. I always um, struggle with these these sort of sum up your life in 30 seconds co- co- questions on the, on the basis of um, I've been pretty lucky to have a quite a wide variety of experiences in my um, short-ish life. Uh, and so, yeah, so was born in Soviet Armenia. Um, it was about four years old when we moved um, in the sort of late 80s to Boston, which was home for a very long time and, and really interesting to grow up in a community um, that was uh, both very familiar in some ways, because I'm ethnically Armenian and there's a large Armenian population in Boston, but very unfamiliar in other ways. So there's a, a, a history of um, uh the Armenian genocide in the sort of early part of the 20th century, and that really dispersed the population of Armenians. And as a result, there are lots of different diaspora communities around the world. Um, and because my family uh, had um, post-genocide moved to sort of the what what is now the capital of Armenia, um, we, uh, as a result of that experience, were much more accustomed to um, different foods and different kind of cultural influences than the community that I was coming into in Boston. And I think the experience there was really interesting because while there was some familiarity, I was still very much, uh, I always felt um, a little bit on the outside of that community um, and had the privilege of of going to an Armenian school and, um, and then later to just a, a, a public school um, in Boston. So I think... Um, really, really important part of my life and one that over the years I've really figured out just how influential that actually was to the Mm. way that I look at the world, particularly because I think there's this sort of huge luck equation. And I know people, you know, it is, yes, it's what you make of it. Yes, it's what you you make of um, the opportunities in front of you, but you have to have those opportunities in the first place. And for me, um, I've always felt the weight of that and and the, 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 you know, incredible sort of opportunity that that provided for me. Um, gro- growing up in the U.S. was incredible. I really, really, really um, enjoyed the experience, particularly a place like Boston. So Boston is very um, interesting because you have these really high-quality universities and people are sort of coming in and out and um, bringing ideas with them. And so I was exposed to a lot as a young kid um, and had parents who were uh, very well-educated. And that was a huge part of how I then saw myself in the world, even though we were immigrants and and there were times that we did it tough for sure. Um, I sort of knew that that wasn't our circumstance was was not really indicative of what the future held. Mm. And my parents did a lot to protect us from actually understanding what that circumstance was and what that deep struggle was. I mean, it was survival for my parents, but I had no real sense of that growing up as a kid. So the immigrant um, experience is fascinating, isn't it? I can, oh, I can certainly relate so much to what you're saying. I mean, myself as sort of, um, you know, a Jewish person growing up in Australia, I mean, it's so different, but so similar. You know, you, you go to your private school growing up and, you know, you, you sort of do feel like you've got a debt to pay back almost because you – you kind of feel in a way like your generation won the lottery of life. Your parents did a lot of hard work and you have this expectation to fulfill 
I don't know if that sort of resonates for you, but that's certainly how I feel. Totally. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, my parents were very, um, they weren't uh, sort of the the kind of image of, of tough immigrant parents. They were incredibly supportive, um, very much wanted us to live in freedom, particularly given their experience of communist Armenia and the kind of an occupation really of their country uh, by um, uh, sort of an imperialist force for so long. I, I think that really changed the way in which they saw the opportunity of what it meant to live in the U.S. And I think sometimes that's Pollyanna, but I, I, I really, um, I felt that opportunity growing up and I felt the, the, though there were many moments where I felt, you know, different and othered and all those sorts of things, which are, um, you know, which are challenges, but ultimately there was an immense opportunity and immense freedom in all of that. And that um, my parents, yeah, they, they sort of set the bar high in the sense of saying, well, actually, you know, we, we, this is what the world looks like and mm -hmm. this is what the world could look like for you. Um, but there was no pressure to be, you know, you must be, a, it's very cliched, but you must be a doctor or a lawyer or any of that. It was much more, what do you want to do? What's going to um, unlock your your greatest potential? And they were pretty, you know, they were busy. They were, they were immigrant parents. They mm. were working 24-7 and we were... Um, we were there to to do what we were there to do, which was to learn and to engage and and to be kids, <laughs> which I was a huge privilege. And so you you grow up and you spend a bit of time in the public service in the US, and then you come out to Oz and you um you're in Sydney and you spend some time in um Gladys's office doing some fairly impressive things too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um it was. Uh, uh, an interesting sort of journey to Australia and spent some time in Armenia, actually, as a Fulbright Scholar in between, and in London at the London School of Economics, which was an awesome experience, um, and then back to Armenia to work on a large-scale development project. Well, and I'm sorry for skipping all those. No, I'm um, like, look, Mike, you know, if there's so much that no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, but, but I, I say that because they were really formative experiences, yeah. and ultimately the kind of path to the U.S. was uh, – to the U.S. – to the um, – to Australia was um, – you know, was sort of colored by those experiences. And when I came here, I was really interested in getting into what I was doing at the time, which was international development work and what I'd, what I'd sort of studied at the LSE. But at that time, um, Aussie had just been cut and there was, there was just a different environment um, around development. So uh, worked briefly in at the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council for a little bit less than a year, which is a super interesting experience, particularly when you're so new to Australia, you have no real sense of the depth of of damage, frankly, that has been done in that in that um relationship. Yeah. And um and it was an honor and 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 I'm I'm so grateful for that time, frankly, because it, it was um you're looking at the world through new eyes and seeing different things. Um and then yes, saw saw Gladys speak uh at an event and um and just I was really struck by how um down to earth she was and how sort of practical she was in the language that she used and her expression, her desire to kind of, you know, find out what that particular audience was interested in. Um, and having worked um, as, a, as a junior burger for two U.S. Um, politicians, <laughs> who were, I was, I was a tiny one. Um, I really, uh, you know, they're very, very sort of formal and a little bit more, um, uh, yeah, a, a little bit, there's a little bit more distance. So that was a huge surprise to me. And I've always been so fast, like completely fascinated with the, um, the kind of pointy end of 
political decision making. Mm. You know, how does it actually work? Why does it work that way? What are the incentives that underpin those decisions? Um, so yeah, after after many years of um, showing up when wherever Gladys was, um, I was invited to interview and to apply, and and ended up um, in her office when she took the role as New South Wales Treasurer. Fantastic! So that's just a great story, I think. And there are a few lessons to draw out from that: is sort of follow people that inspire you and make yourself known to them, and stay around for opportunity, right? Yes, yeah, a slightly stockish behaviour, a little bit <laughs> stocking, but that's right. I mean, I think you know that was in part. Um, some of the lessons I learned as a kid that your place in the world is wherever you want it to be. Yeah. It does not matter where you've started. Um, it, it's the destination is is also is also part of it, but it's actually the journey and and you know and and persistence. My dad is an incredibly persistent human being. Yeah. Um, that is part of the the immigrant mantra. You have to be to survive. Yep. Uh, and that teaches you that you know, if it doesn't work out the first time, we'll try twenty more times and we'll see what happens then. I love it. I mm. love it. And and so what. It, Having spent some time in Gladys's office, what are some of the things that you learned that sort of most stand out for you and apply to your life today as sort of leadership lessons? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, the the sort of adaptive nature of politics and the fact that you have, um, it's an incredible privilege to be in a role like that, one that is quite opaque to the rest of the world, which I don't love, um, but is is um, allows you a kind of to have a real sense of purpose and, and, and an ability to have influence over a number of different issues. And I think the weight of that means you have to take the role really seriously every day, but you also have to learn how to listen to multiple sides of the story. People are not two-dimensional and and you have to get really clear on that pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, because it's very easy for the world to turn into us and them when you're in a world like um, like politics. And I'd say the the sort of flexibility, the the adaptability, um, that becomes part of your DNA. If you're if you see the world in black and white, that's going to be a really tough world for you to live in. Um, and you also have to be uh, I think grounded in in a set of values, and then but be be ready for information to change your views. And I I was very much coming from the U.S. You know, really, um, uh, there's a lot in in the U.S. identity and the American identity that I absolutely still hold near and dear. But you know, when I moved here, I thought, oh, compulsory voting couldn't possibly. And now I'm like, what a beautiful moderating force <laughs> it is! It is it is incredibly um, important to a democracy. Um, you know, that 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 to me, there are lots of things that have shifted in my time because I've had uh, the the opportunity to work deeply within a system yep. like the sort of Westminster system in Australia. I like what you said there. And I think sort of one, one of the things you mentioned in your, your notes before coming on is sort of that ability or, or people should take up that opportunity to talk to people and listen to people that they don't necessarily agree with and might have a different view on. Yeah. Um, and sort of the, the focus on patience, listening, and care that comes with that sort of sounds like a fair bit of that came from that experience too. Absolutely. I mean, I, you can't get anything done. If you come in and you say, you know, this is my view and that's that's it and I'm not going to move, um, good luck to you. I mean, it's just never going to happen. I think you know the, the art of compromise, the, the art of the possible, all sorts of things are said about politics. But Ultimately, you're representing a broad set of views, and um, you know you are there as a servant of the public, and you are there to serve um, where the public is, but also lead. Mm. And and on on that basis, it's it's your sort of prerogative to actually 
really deeply understand not just what people think, but why they think that. What was the context in which they um, they understood? How do they contextualize? What are the sort of perhaps biases they're bringing into the conversation? And importantly, what are the biases you're bringing into the conversation? Oh, I love that one. Yeah, that's, I love that's that. just that's uh, paramount. Paramount. And so I'm guessing in a lot of the briefings you would have had and people coming in, there is a bit of that decoding that happens before and after where so-and-so comes in, they make a case, they want X, Y, Z, and then it's sort of trying to deconstruct the political lens of where that might be coming from and then um, viewing it after having deconstructed or at least putting a name to your biases that you bring to that kind of picture or analysis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Spot on. I mean, I would say the um, the process is very iterative. Uh, it, it involves understanding what the incentives are, whether they're, you know, personal values incentives, where did those come from, whether they're based on what, um, you know, that particular uh, politician's community um, is is looking at or a particular public servant's pressures or, you know, what is what's underpinning the thinking and being able to talk at that level and really shift conversations at that level, that's that's where you start to see change. And importantly, you start to see change in yourself because you see things from more than just your point of view. So from Gladys's office, tell me about the CSI opportunity and the Centre for Social Impact. Um, love love to for you also to give a bit of a brief of what the Centre for Social Impact does because there's so much that it actually does do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, look, it was an interesting journey out of politics. So um, Gladys resigned, which is uh, probably quite well known to a number of audiences. And um, I'd been working f- with her for about nearly seven years at that stage. Uh, I had um, a, a significant role in the pandemic and in, in sort of pandemic policy, particularly on the political side, um, but really with the policy lens of how do we how do we make this work, given how much complexity and uncertainty there is here. Uh, and in that process, I was able to then um, ultimately, uh, I think, meet, meet a number of stakeholders. And when when she resigned, I was uh, very uh, buoyed by, by the number of people who called and said, well, you know, what's next for you? Um, how can we, you know, are you interested in this role or that role? And, and, and lots of approaches. So that gave me kind of a moment to pause. I hadn't seen my family in many, many years because of the pandemic. Um, did a bit of that grounding work, went back home and um, really started to think through, you know, with no anxiety, the world's your oyster, what do you want to do? And I've always been in sort of um, social impact ecosystem roles, and I consider government a part of that. Uh, So when I was approached for the CSI role by, I think it was a recruiter at the time, I kind of thought, well, I'm not an academic, but I've always loved what the higher ed sector contributes, particularly in Australia. They're public purpose institutions. Um, And I was just, I thought, what an interesting opportunity. And, you know, if went through the interview process and if they'll have me, um, absolutely uh, interested in seeing what the potential was um, for my own growth, absolutely, but also um, in terms of what perhaps my quite different perspective might bring to an organization like the Center for Social Impact. It's fantastic. And so I did ask a two-part question there. I'd lo- love to hear a little bit about this, sort of a bit of an overview of the mission of the CSI and what it does. And, and just for those listening, it's not CSI Miami. It's not crime scene <laughs> investigation. Terrible joke, but must be made. Um, and look, we have had, just to flag, a number of guests from CSI on before. For anyone listening, you can hear from Christian Siebert. Uh, you can hear from Joe Barraquette, who's, who's moved on but was formerly there. Um, there's 
a couple more I'm forgetting, but yeah, sorry. No, absolutely. Yeah, yes. CSI. So the Center for Social Impact, you know, we have a, a broader vision, which is for a world where everyone can thrive and grow their capabilities. So that's really important to what we do. Um, and we partner with others in the social impact ecosystem. I don't think we, cause we see ourselves very much as part of the ecosystem as opposed to kind of a helicopter view, you know, looking over or as an advocacy organization. No, we're really there to create the sort of systems level shifts um, that are needed for lasting social impact. And we do that through uh, primarily through our kind of education offering and our research offering. Um, and a lot of that research is very, you know, embedded, practice-based, translational. So it's it's not sort of a typical, um, if there is such a thing, a typical research center, but it's much more about how we do the work um, and with whom we do that work for what purpose. Uh, and I uh, have a... Um, teams in we have teams in in sort of four different universities uh and it's it's yeah it's it's fantastic everybody is um i find really collaborative i was quite nervous coming in you know not just because i wasn't an academic but i'm a uh former staffer to a liberal government what is that going to be like <laughs> and um i don't know i think it's just the the approach you take i've i've tried to be as open as possible i'm i am who i am and i'm really interested in uh, learning about other people and having views challenged um, on on my side and other, you know, those kind of really opening, engaging, safe conversations where you feel like um, I've just understood something about the person in front of me and I well, get well, to do that all the time. Um, I think given what you said about uh, wanting to listen and hear different points of view, you couldn't have found yourself in a better place. I mean, <laughs> academics right. for me are some of my favorite people to have on the podcast and that's probably why I've had such good CSI representation to date is they bring um, an analytical mindset and open-mindedness, a, a research focus that I think is really great because you don't just hear a hypothesis, but you hear a lot of uncertainty, a lot of willingness to move, a lot of um, questioning. And I think that's that intellectual rigor um, is so good to be around. It's very, um, it gives me good vitality. I could not agree more. And you know, you're fundamentally with people who really care about the world and what their part of that is. And they're so thoughtful about it. I just think that's um, it's just not a, you know, it's not an opportunity you get everywhere in every role. And I think the rigor, the intellectual kind of, um, you know, sort of horsepower, uh, but but also the humility as well. And that can be challenging when when I think, you know, academics are often experts in their area um, and and have a, um, have a deep respect for expertise. But particularly at CSI, there's a, a deep expertise, uh, a d a rather a deep um, respect for the expertise of lived experience. And that, you know, those sorts of models are a little bit different about, you know, the way that we do our work is a little bit different. And therefore, the people that CSI attracts are, are a little bit different as well. Different in the best kind of way, I would exactly. say. Exactly. Yeah. So two very important things you're working on, the SILA program, I want to talk about first. Yep. Um, and then also to hear about the wonderful research and action that you're taking in the space of cultural diversity in Australian philanthropy. Yeah. So, um, so the Social Impact Leadership Australia program, SILA, um, was developed um, and created by my predecessor, um, Professor Christine who actually still works um, with CSI along with her role at the Paul Ramsey Foundation, and she still teaches our SILA course. And it, it's such a, um, I think it was a recognition that there are uh, some incredible um, organizations in the, particularly in the kind of for-purpose sector, charities, um, social enterprise, you know, doing work that is incredibly challenging with very limited support, limited budgets, 
Um, and it was an investment in them. And the real focus is on leadership of the self, leadership of the organization, and leadership of the system. Um, and it's fully funded. We have some incredible philanthropic partners. Really? Uh, yep, fully funded. Um, I might have applied had another. Oh, I know. There you go. Well, it, it's it's really um, it's it's quite a special program. There's nothing like it in the world. But uh, we have um, Paul Ramsey Foundation as one of the funders. We also have the Sydney Meyer Fund and the um, Meyer Foundation and the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation, mm, and they've. They've made a huge investment in for-purpose CEOs. So that that program, you know, we're in cohort now, just uh, finishing up cohort two, um, and it's moving around the country. And it's it's something that um, I've had uh, a lot of conversations with friends, actually, who've taken um, t- taken up the sort of Sila experience. And you just hear over and over again, like, this has really changed my approach, not just to my own leadership, but to how I look at where I sit in the system what I need to do is also built a fantastic um, ecosystem and, and and a support system for me when things are really tough. I mean, leadership is lonely. Mm. You know, you have pressure from the top, you have pressure from the bottom, um, and and you can you can feel really stuck. There's not um, there's not a lot of opportunity to engage on issues without having um, without having kind of a trusted cohort around you. And often we would find excellent. Uh, not-for-profit CEOs would fly over to Hanf- Harvard or Stanford and and, and do those um, courses and then fly back and be like, okay, well, I, I still don't have that ecosystem around me. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a huge part of this process, learning from each other, not just learning from, um, you know, the experiences and the instruction that we provide. I, I like that, the loneliness of leadership. I mean, you, you sort of have 360-degree pressure, don't you? So, yeah, yeah. And I think we all need more friends in that space and colleagues to turn to. And um, you do need, I think, um, support networks outside where you work too. I mean, yeah. You need somewhere to go that you can take that stuff, the sort of peer programs in a way. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. That does sound really good. That's right, that's right. Um, and then on cultural diversity and philanthropy, it's interesting for me coming coming from a background of um, being a, a uh, woman who comes from a um, uh, culturally and linguistically diverse background, you know, grew up uh, and was – um, fluent in, in both languages, in Armenian and in English, and um, grew up in an Armenian-speaking household and uh, have, a, have a very long and complicated name. And, you know, people will often ask um, where I'm from and where's the background from. And, and I think, you know, that the, the different models that are, you know, diversity is, is um, quite a uh, broad um, uh, you know, you can be diverse on on, on many different sort of um, uh, spectrums, and I think the cultural diversity lens is is really important to examine in the phil- you know philanthropy space. So, um, you know, Macquarie Bank Foundation is is one of our key funding partners there, and I think the the really deep investigation of what does this mean for this sector, what are the different models you can bring, um, is is really important. So we're looking forward to releasing that work um, at some stage this year and uh, furthering the conversation. And CSI does that, uh, you know, along a spectrum of of different issues in the social impact ecosystem across not for profit, philanthropy, mm-hmm. you know, corporate sector, government, government. So it's uh, it's a very um, it's a very rich and diverse set of issues we deal with. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. I must say, I like what you said about diversity existing across a range of spectrums. I often think that, you know, when we talk about diversity, we, we kind of get very stuck on gender diversity, mm. um, but there are a whole range of diverse, cultural diversity being very important too. And I think 
interesting to highlight that around philanthropy. I mean, I must say most of my interactions to date, most of the people I've dealt with have been white Australian in philanthropy. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. I'm sure background diversity is there and experience diversity, cognitive diversity. But yeah, it's been really interesting to sort of get a little bit more understanding of why these there are so many of these organisations are funding, funding culturally diverse causes, but perhaps better cultural representation could be important too or other forms of diversity. Yeah, and I think this sort of um, the practice of philanthropy is an incredibly important focus area for CSI because we know that this is a lot of philanthropists are actually really thoughtful about the issue. There's there's some deep philosophical challenges with philanthropy, which we know of. Um, and um, I think oh, you might know, but last year we, we um, had a piece of work funded by Daniel Petri and the Petri Foundation about sort of high net worth and ultra high net worth giving and what's the profile and the, and the kind of quantity, you know, where where do we sit compared to where we think we sit? And I think elucidating those conversations and really just being really open about where we are versus where we might think we, we are is, is some of what the higher ed sector does really mm. well. It's actually yes. just bringing a bit of light to issues. Especially um, spaces that are so opaque like philanthropy. Absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. uh, I like to think that philanthropy – um, impact investing, uh, venture capital, like these are all like, for me, fascinating topics that are all so opaque. Yeah. And there's no reason for that really, other than probably a lack of research attention. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously access to people and data, but you, you guys do an amazing job at that. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that opacity is, is a huge, a huge factor. And, um, uh, kind of thoughtful looks into those those sorts of worlds yep. and and you know a a, a uh, independent lens as well. Um, you know we don't have a horse in the race. We just want to understand, and, and that's critical. And that's, yeah, it's incredibly important. And I think you know trying to do the same thing on humans of purpose. I mean, just to have some people come on from major philanthropic organisations and backgrounds. I mean, the value for the audience and for myself is just enormous because people don't know this stuff. And it's it's quite funny to sort of have people come on and talk about things which to them are very basic, but probably the majority of the audience, including myself, I just have no clue about. I've listened to quite a few episodes, Mike, and I have to say I've learned a lot, so I agree with you. Thank you. That's very kind. wasn't looking to have uh, smoke blown up there, but thank you very much. That's sweet. Um, so I had a question just about, you know, this is a leadership question I like to bandy around and just get a range of views on. Yep. Does culture eat strategy for breakfast? Does what? Sorry. Does culture eat strategy for breakfast? Yes. <laughs> Look, I mean, culture is is everything in so many ways. I think the ability to work um, in a in a safe environment where people feel I'm going to say the hard thing and I and and I'm going to um, push the boundary, but I'm going to do it knowing that there aren't repercussions, knowing that I can make mistakes, knowing I can be wrong, um, just broadens the ability to then uh, not just develop a strategy, but implement and execute a strategy. I think there's so much in the world we live in now that requires us to be adaptive. You know, they're not, it depends on what kind of organization you lead, but most of the challenges um, are, at least in an organization like CSI, are not technical challenges, they're adaptive challenges. Mm -hmm. And and you need trust to be able to work on issues like that. So I think um, culture is really, really important. And one of the things I've learned in my leadership journey is spend the most amount of time on things that matter 
most. <laughs> and I think we don't do that so to our detriment. So for example, hiring, hiring is a really important process for me. It always has been. And I am constantly on the lookout for who would be right for this role. Oh, I met this person. Well, that's interesting. They seem to have this, you know, and, and, and maybe there's no role for them right now, but maybe in three years time there is. And, and I think that's something that um, you know, I, t- I take part in 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 all of our recruitment processes, and it, to me, there's no doesn't matter junior senior. I, I'm there because it matters that much to mm-hmm. me who's going to be um, in the team. And I suppose you would say then that good strategy can only come out of good culture. Mm, I agree. Yep. And I think um, the uh, kind of question again of diversity is an interesting one, um, and was actually on a leadership. Um, an executive leadership program last week, and we were talking a lot about what diversity is and how do you bring in diverse perspectives, but actually allow them not to be um, not to be just dragged into what the norm is, but to actually safely provide their diverse perspective and have that be taken in. What are the strategies? And I think that was that was really important for me because I, I find. Um, we are all very biased. It's very hard not to hire a certain kind of person, and you know I, that that is similar to you or similar experiences to you. And I think that's um, that is where you know examining yourself and really saying, well, what is it that I'm bringing to this? You know, am I? It might not be overt, like oh, I'm I'm racist, but it might be. Well, actually, I see. I seem to think this this sort of. Uh, background or this cohort or this set of experiences are more valuable than others. Mm. And why do I think that? Um, And some, you know, there may be perfectly appropriate reasons for where you're trying to head in your organization. But um, I think that examination is is often not not done in a way that it should be. Yeah, I like that. I I often think about, you know, starting from the point uh, of inquiry where your mindset might be, I might be wrong about this, yes. but I'm going to explore it. Oh, I love that. Uh, so I try and start my thinking and conversations in that manner, like where if I, I'm more conscious these days, if I'm expounding a viewpoint that's very early on, or even if it's late stage, I'll say I might know nothing at all and I might be completely wrong, but this is sort of where I'm thinking, yeah. where my thinking is at. And I think that sort of frames up well that important element of reflection and self-doubt that brings in diverse viewpoints. And, the, yeah, like I mean, just going back to what you said earlier, the ability to change your mind I think is such a signal of strength, whereas coming from a more masculine um, identity and mm. background myself, that used to be seen as such a sign of weakness, but mm. even that's changed over time. Yeah. Like, well, in politics, I mean, that's a great example, right? Yeah. Leaders, oh, you're you're weak if you change your view. Yeah. And actually, um, I, one thing I did learn from Gladys, she was very thoughtful about saying, "Well, actually, we got it wrong, and yep. that's that's okay." You know, and and that I think for me is res- the most admirable thing. Oh, couldn't agree more. To see politicians and public figures come out and say, "Oh, look, I got this wrong." Sometimes I just wish leaders who even adopt the machismo would come out, drop it, and just say, "Look, I got this wrong," and yeah, and totally. they don't understand how important that is for trust and mm-hmm. psych safety and. Mm-hmm. You know, that even goes back to what you were saying about culture eating strategy for breakfast. I feel like the things, the the bedrocks of a good organization will always be trust and psychological safety. Mm-hmm. What are the conversations that are allowed to happen that might not be able to happen elsewhere that you, you can enable through your force and action? Yeah. And then, you know, it's a work in progress. I don't think I get it right at all levels of my organization. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really 
conscious of that, but it's it's um it's tough and no one will tell a leader you can't expect somebody to say, Yes, I feel <laughs> feel psychologically safe. But what are the warning signs you're looking out for to say, wait a minute, you know, they just they just told me they were fine with it, but actually, or you know, are there yeah. pre-conversations happening before people come yeah. into meetings? Like you've got to be vigilant. Um and and you know, an oft oft quoted sort of uh uh point on this is that culture and and trust takes so much time to build and just one second to break. Yep. And I think that's just um, that vigilance is really important in that regard. That's so well said. So look, I mean, we should say, and I definitely mentioned this uh, in our introduction, you know, huge moment being a year now in the job. Yeah. What have been some of the highlights for you, the learnings, the lessons along the way, the key achievements or milestones? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about the future and your vision moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I, look, I think uh, it's been an interesting year. I'm entering what I would say are two new sectors. So the higher ed sector, certainly not being an academic um, and I believe I'm the only CEO of the organization that hasn't been an academic. Peter Shergold was the founding CEO, but had um, a PhD in academic background before that, though he hadn't practiced in a while. Um, and 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 um, certainly the other two leaders were were professors. So I think that was interesting for me and and a bit of a challenge. And you sort of say, okay, well, how am I? Um, showing up as authentic every day and not trying to be something I'm not, but also acknowledging that that might be odd for some people and that they need some time to then understand who I am in order to be able to trust that I will respect um, the what they bring to the table because I haven't experienced that myself as an academic. Uh, and then the social purpose ecosystem. I mean, I do think for me, um, my experiences abroad and, and, and certainly um, throughout my career have been very purpose focused and have been very much in the not for profit or um you know sort of foundation or government space but there is a um there's a kind of community uh and and, a, and an ecosystem that you need to learn and you need to understand the language of and you need to spend some time with but you also need to challenge i think i've been really buoyed by the um some of the interactions i've had with the CEOs of other organizations who say Armin, you know you're your political experience is invaluable to us. I think you're you're don't underplay how important that is because so few people in our roles have experienced what you've experienced. So bring that out, you know, let's have that conversation and that's been really helpful for me because sometimes the um anxiety and I had this in the beginning was oh well I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want people to think that's all, you know, that's what I bring to the table because then you know, you feel sort of pressured and to, to be in, 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 boxed in, but actually it's a great strength. So yep. I think that was a learning for me early on. Um, the other big one is, you know, leadership is a practice. <laughs> it's not a destination. You don't have to be great and perfect and excellent every single time. Um, you know, that is something I learned in my previous leadership role in government as well, but really an, in a CEO role, which is a little bit lonelier because you don't have as I said, you know, pressure from the top, you have board to respond to, and then and then a team that is going through a time of change and, and everybody's appetite for change is different. You have to meet people where they are on that front. Um, you know, that's, I've made mistakes. Of course, I make mistakes daily, but I think knowing that that's, it's a practice and I have to keep getting better and keep working on things um, through through a, a, a healthy kind of dose of introspection has been really, really useful um, and a bit grounding, frankly. Um, and I think trusting your, my instincts, I think that's something that when you're in a new environment and you're the sort of person that I am and you want to sort of start from the assumption that you're not right, that actually you you need to learn and listen, 
you also sometimes forget that actually you might be right and it's okay to trust your instincts and it's okay to kind of put your position there and say, well, you know, these are the questions that are coming up for me. Um, let me test them as opposed to, well, perhaps I'm wrong in, in my in my set of assumptions because I don't have the context of the lay of the land as, as well as, um, you know, I, I, I don't have that experience that others have coming into this role. Uh, so that's been really, really useful for me. Yeah, wow. It's a, it's a massive series of learnings there. And mm. I really like the discussion of leadership as a journey or a voyage rather than a destination. So how do you, what, what keeps propelling you along that leadership journey? Where are you getting your um, your growth from? Uh, other than experience, because, you know, they say there's the 70-20-10 model, but, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of it just from your job. But um, what do you do to kind of enhance or accelerate your leadership learnings along the way? Yeah. So uh, an example was, you know, I was invited to um, take part in the McKinsey Executive Leadership Program last week, which was uh, I'd say probably primarily for uh, for kind of um, corporate leaders. But what was really fantastic for me, and I'm um, able to uh, win a scholarship through the Australian Scholarships Foundation for that, so I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Uh, it, it exposes you to lots of different kinds of thinking. It, it sort of gives you space to deepen um, your your understanding of, of where you are on your journey. Um, you know, I call it kind of really intensive therapy, really. It's just, you know, you have to hear it. <laughs> Isn't hear that the, true? Oh, totally. Leadership training is Thankfully, therapy, basically. It, it genuinely is. It's like you have a lot of problems that you need to go away and work on, and we're here to help you. <laughs> That's right. And, oh, by the way, this thing that you sort of always thought was normal, probably, yeah. you know, probably let's re-examine that. So um, I, I find that growth and stretch really important. I've also been – you know, and this is sort of the the proactive versus versus luck thing. But I've had some brilliant mentors, and I have one currently who is um, pushes me in ways that are much more about the whole human. So not just you know how are you? I, I I'm very hard on myself. I you know I have this incredible drive and want to to excel, and not just for excelling sake, but I'm like oh running out of time, you know, and 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 you're only on this earth for. F- a limited period of time, yep. and you're super lucky. And what you're are you going to do with that luck? Rocket of a human, are they? I'd say <laughs> that you are like, um, you know, like just uh, full on in the best possible way. But like, I can see that that might be, you know, you may every day expect a lot from yourself. Yes, imagine being living in this in this uh, full on. That's <laughs> what we're doing. Right, we're in, stepping into you right now. That's right. That's right. But yeah. he's he's fantastic because he sort of says, you know, is is sort of like when one is enough. What is enough? How do you? How do you reflect on what this is doing to other aspects of your life? You know, where are you at with health? Where are you at with, you know, this is, your choices are not unlimited and you you cannot just maximize every possible opportunity and be the most efficient person all the time. Like, you've got to live. And to me, that's like, you know, there's a sense of maturity that comes with understanding that and I'm still on that journey. And I think that that to me, having somebody be that, I, that I trust that deeply and be that frank with me um, is awesome. <laughs> and I'm so, so grateful for it. It's amazing. And and so thinking about uh, CSI and the future, what's on the horizon? I mean, you talked about some of the things that you're doing now, but what are you, what, what's sort of tickling the back of your mind as far as uh, sort of direction might be? Yeah. I mean, we've been going for 15 years. There are no, there's no other domestic collaboration of universities that operates in the way that we do. Um, that I can find, and I think it's a it's a time of pause and reflection for me to say, well, where where have we been? 
what does the world need of us? Importantly, that's something that um, I, I think as a North Star of not not just what do we want to contribute, what can we contribute, what does the wor- world need of us? And um, one of my my team members, um, you know, calls it the ikigai, if you know, the, ja- yes. the Japanese person, the ikigai of sort of, you know, your organization. And for, for us, we're really thinking about what does the next 15 years look like? Should there be a next 15 years? You know, let's, um, there's often this this pressure and this kind of, intensity around existing. And I'm like, I don't want to exist for existing sake. What are we adding value to? Have we added value? You know, yep. let's let's understand that. Um, and for me, I think, you know, the education piece in particular, you know, we've had this fantastic 15-year uh, journey of being a huge part of creating the modern social impact professional in Australia. I think now's the time to sort of then look at what what are the needs of those sectors that we've we've served for so long. Are there perhaps um, shorter, sharper professional development style, exec ed style um, courses that we can offer that might meet those sectors where they are, and work with philanthropy to bring on um, some funding for that, so that uh, or, or people aren't missing out just because they they don't have PD budgets because they're small not for profits, for example. Uh, so definitely in that space, I'm, we're having deep conversations about what are the big three to five things we really feel um, we want to address as part of our our remit in in um, as our national kind of team. So there's there's some really uh, fantastic conversations happening. Um, I'm really interested in the intersection between things. I think. You know, we often talk about how social impact is no longer the purview of just one or two sectors. It's not just charities that work on social impact. You know, the the, the sort of corporate sector, I mean, you know, the, the S of ESG, where are we up to on that? How do we make that real and tangible and help organizations that are really interested in, in deepening their impact because they have stakeholders that are requiring that of them because they have employees, you know, younger generations coming up saying, well, you know, what's your purpose? This isn't just about money for money's sake, we actually want to be doing something that's not harmful for the world. So there's there's a lot in that. Um, my government hat is hard to ignore. I think, you know, really deeply understanding the incentives that government works in the particularly the political levels. I think that's, you know, as I said earlier, quite opaque. Um, how do we help support some of the work that the work that we know needs to happen in Australia, particularly, but globally as well on, on some of the issues that we care most about. And that kind of system level thinking um, what are the, um, you know, I was listening to one of um, one of the guests you had on uh, in a previous po- podcast, and he said a set of words that I often think of as well. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, peas in a pod. But it was, <laughs> um, you know, systems, not silos. I think that's yeah. something that in government is really hard to implement. But, you know, systems are broader than that. And there are sort of systems on top of systems. So I think really deeply thinking about how do we, where do we play at CSI, because that's sort of the lens that we take to every problem. Um, how do we help bring some of those um, cross-sectoral um, issues together? You know, housing is a great example. Homeless is a great example. You're never going to solve that with just government and the not-for-profit sector. You also need to think about, well, what is the, what, you know, what, what is the property industry's role in this conversation? And and um, the property industry is also already thinking in this direction. So how do we help support them to better match um, the need and, the, and, and, and bring some rigor to that debate and conversation so that we're all kind of working toward some lasting social impact, not just um, something that sort of ticks the box for now? So well said. I love that. The idea of connecting everything up is just sort of to a T. So, I mean, you talked before about sort of the buckets and, you know, sometimes um, the leaky bucket examples given where you can try and keep filling up the bucket with work, but then it might leak out at the bottom if you're not 
properly supporting it or you're not filling up your other buckets. So what do you do outside of your your work to sort of make sure that you stay sane, um, you know, get out of your own head and keep picking goals in your health and life beyond work? Yeah, it's um, always a work in progress on that one. Um, oh gosh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm jokingly a woman of many hobbies. I, I really I love learning new things. Um, it's like an addiction, and I just I I'm um, so interested in things that occupy your your hands and are tactile and and allow you to through a kind of a meditative process um, accomplish something, which is my problem. I'm like I should be tried meditation for many, many years and it's worked, uh, it's worked in ebbs and flows for me. But, you know, like many people with most of us with very busy heads, um, it's a deep discipline <laughs> you require, uh, which I'm, I'm working on. Um, <laughs> but my version of that for now is, you know, learning how to, you know, my husband brought me up a, a, a plant propagation course and, you know, I'm taking this kind of, um, this other course with a friend, which is you know just a bunch of nerdy pursuits, which I love deeply. Uh, so, so there's that that I, I I work on. You know, a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, um, and I'm actually um, I I like to, I sleep a lot. I think that's one thing where people are sort of like, well, how do you do it? I'm like. You know, I'm so in awe of people who sleep for four or five hours, but that is not me. I you, sh- you shouldn't be in awe of it. It's terrible. Well, it's it's, but it's sort of like, I mean, one, is it even true? How long can you sleep for four or five hours? But also, <laughs> you know, even in my most intense periods during the pandemic and politics, when you know it, it was really a twenty four seven job. I mean, I showered with my with my work phone. Like you, mm. you really, you never, you never left that thing aside. But I slept. I mm. had to sleep. I just don't know how to exist without mm. without good solid sleep. So. Um, there are things that I do that are protective factors and I'm very conscious of, and sleep is one of them. Um, but there's a lot there that's a work in progress as well. It's been so good getting inside your head a little bit. Thanks for joining me, Arvindai. Thank you for having me. How can people connect with you and learn a bit more about your amazing work? Uh, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's the only social media platform I use. Um, so please do connect on LinkedIn. Uh, we have at CSI a number of uh, social media platforms, um, but very happy to hear from people. And if anybody you know wants to catch up, um, that's one thing that I've learned because I've been given so much opportunity in my life. I pay it forward and I have a lot of mentee relationships um, that I take uh, great joy in. And that's a great way for me to fill my cup, actually. Um, so yeah, if you're a young person in particular or have some questions about your career, I'd be very, very happy um, to catch up. Well, congratulations on a momentous, massive and action-packed first year, and I'm sure many uh, great more years to come. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player, and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.